You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon for part two of our series covering the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, or CROI, which took place in February of 2023. Welcome again, John. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for uh, for doing this again, Mariana. I think these are some important topics that we'll cover today um, for our second edition for CROI. So, John, last time we talked about day one of this conference and major updates. What else can you tell us about the meeting? Yeah, so so I thought what, what we would do uh, is just kind of break this up into a couple of things. The first thing I thought I'd talk a little bit about is some of the HIV prevention data um, so that was covered at CROI. So there's quite a bit of this. You know, obviously, big piece of it in the HIV epidemic for us with the ATCs is uh, you know one of one of our one of our most important. Um, uh, strategies is is to get people on prep. So there was a poster by uh, author was Hoover, uh, which looked at prep use in the United States for Medicaid recipients. So this gets a good look at patients who may be uh, you know not commercially insured but insured through Medicaid. And they looked at prescriptions from a time period between 2015 uh, and 2020, and they saw that prep prescriptions actually increased from around 7,900 in, in 2015 up to uh, just over 41,000 uh, in 2020. And that's an annual rise, if you look at it, of roughly about 31% overall. So that's that's really great. So we had more patients on PrEP. But here's the, here's the big story. If the, the largest increases, though, that occurred from that time period are still occurring in white men. So while the increases in Blacks and Latinx men, and also in, in, um, in Black and Latinx women uh, as well, continue to lag behind the increases that we see in white men. So when you look at the differences, when you'll follow the lines from you know 2015 to 2020, the line is much steeper for patients who are white men versus those who are uh, either uh, black, Latinx, uh, either men, men, uh, man, male or or female. So really, it's it's a huge problem. And I think um, uh, since we know that a lot of the new infections are coming from black MSM and Latinx, you know, we really have to kind of do something to kind of re reset the the kind of the prep bar to make sure that we're getting people who need it on on PrEP. Uh, In in fact, if we just looked at the 2020 data, um, the age was actually good. It was 16 to 34. That was 57% of the the PrEP users, which is the big chunk of uh, that 16 to 34 age group is really where we're seeing the most number of new infections. Um, Whites, it was 40%. But black for black and African Americans, uh, it was only 22%. So it, it's approximately twice as many patients who are white 
uh, who are on PrEP than, than, than Blacks. So, so again, you know, um, again, Black, African-American, they, they use Black, you know, in the terminology for a lot of these studies. But I guess the bottom line is we really have a lot of work to do to make sure that we get PrEP to the people that really need it. And that includes, um, you know, people who are Black, African-American, and, and, uh, and, and Latinx, both male, male and females. You know, we just don't even want to forget about the patients who are white who are using PrEP, but clearly are there, big, there, are, there are some disparities here that we need to discuss. So we'll figure out what to do about it. So next up, Mariana, was the HPTNOE3 study. So we've talked about this before, uh, but this was the comparison of, of the cabotegavir injection uh, to Truvada. Uh, and so Truvada is the, the TDF-FTC, the older version of tenofovir. And this has been in MSM and, and transgender women. And it really showed that cab long-acting was superior to TDF-FTC. But in this analysis, the Sacroi, what they did was they looked at efficacy rates, again, in Black, MSM, and transgender women in the United States. So these are just looking at Black patients, MSM, and transgender. So it's all either men or, or transgender women, all and all the patients in this analysis were Black. And so nearly 50% of the patients in the United States in the study were actually Black or African-American. So, so what they did was they looked at efficacy first. And, and if you look at that, um, the rates of new infections on either TDF, FTC, or on CAB long acting were higher in those um, uh, who were black versus those who, who were non-black. Um, and in addition, when you look at adherence as evidenced by either on-time cabotegavir injections or they used this dry blood spots for TDF-FTC, they found similar issues where on-time injection rates were actually lower in black MSM and TDF-FTC adherence was actually lower in black MSMs compared to non-black patients. So again, just another example of even if you are on PrEP, right? Uh, and again, this is looking at CAB-LA and also TDF-FTC, the rates of HIV infections were actually higher in those patients who were black and uh, adherence appears to be appears to be less as well. These are all things I think we need to think about when we're, when we're talking about uh, you know, putting patients on on prep uh, for for HIV prevention in, in some in some of these communities, and finally, a, a look at the CDC data in the U.S. Uh, using this this is this IQ via real world uh, prescription database, which some some places use to to look at uh, at things related to HIV. Um, and again, anyway, anyway, from from one of 2013, that's January 2013 to September of 2022, showed that um, in in September. Of 2022, over 50% of the patients who are on PrEP are actually on TDF-FTC generic with about 45% on TAF-FTC. So this just basically basically shows you that if you look at TAF-FTC or TDF-FTC altogether, um, and again, most of the TDF-FTCs are now generics, it's about 95% um, of the patients are on, are on oral therapy. And then there were small numbers, and again, remember, this is just in September of 2022, about a half percent of those patients were on we're on CAB LA. 93% of these patients were male, 65% were 25 to 34 and 35 to 44 year old groups. And I think it just gives a sense of what most people are on for PrEP. So when you look at, you know, big populations, most patients are going to be on oral PrEP nowadays. And, you know, while the injection is starting to pick up, um, the use of the injection, I think um, right now, most patients are either on TDF-FTC or, or TAF-FTC for PrEP. That I'm curious about, and I'm sure others are as well, is what, if anything, was covered in regards to data looking at PrEP in women? 
Yeah, so Marianne, another important point, right? Um, women, uh, the numbers of patients uh, who are on PrEP who are women, I think it's less than 10% of the people who require PrEP are actually on it. It's less than 10%. It's a, the, the numbers are really bad, uh, and we have a lot of work to do here. But there was a nice look at TDFFTC. So this, again, this is looking at the older version of tenofovir. And women came from uh, from Dr. Morazzo. And, and she, what they did in, in this study is that she looked at uh, just under 6,300 female patients who were on PrEP. And they wanted to look at both adherence and, and efficacy outcomes. So really looking at how well do patients take it, you know, what are the adherence rates, and then what is the efficacy rates and what are the HIV outcomes when you look at these patients. And again, this is all women, uh, and they were patients from multiple sites. Most of this was outside of the U.S. In fact, 99% of the patients were outside of the United States. 21% from India, Uganda, 3%, Botswana, 5%. South Africa, 28% in Kenya, about 45%. So mostly Kenya, South Africa, and India. And what they did was they basically looked at both um, objective measures of adherence, which is using uh, these TDF uh, uh, diphosphate dry blood spots or plasma, even some patients actually had plasma tenofovir levels drawn. And they also looked at subjective adherence as well, looking at pill caps, pill counts. They have these electronic monitoring systems where you know you take the cap off and it, you know, basically says that you probably took the pill out that day, self-report. And basically, they, they use both objective and subjective measures to kind of come up with an estimated a, a rate of HIV adherence and uh, of HIV PrEP adherence. And what they found was that um, um, they kind of characterized people as having excellent adherence, which means you took at least seven tabs per week. Very good was four to six tabs per week. Fair was two to three. And then less than two is poor adherence. And then uh, they took the next step and they really kind of put these patients into these groups of saying, you know, basically great, good adherence, you know, great adherence, okay adherence, not so great adherence and then poor adherence. And the bottom line, what they showed, there was a direct correlation in these large numbers of patients between the incidence of HIV infection in women on this oral TDFFTC per 100 uh, patient years for those with better adherence, they had they had they had zero infections uh, with those patients who had the best adherence, meaning that they were taking you know seven seven or more pills a week, so seven pills a week roughly. And then if you looked at the next group, it was five. Um, if those patients who were consistently um, low adherence group, uh, th that 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 rate of HIV infection was was much higher. So it was almost like a correlation between a direct line between the number of, number of pills you take per day and the percent the number of HIV infections versus you know the lowest number of pills per week gave the highest numbers numbers of infection. Again, large database, right? Large database of patients, so 6,300 females in particular, which I think really gives some some credence to the fact that if you take your pills and if you take seven a week. Um, you know, or close to it, you're probably going to do pretty well at preventing HIV infection in women. So, really, a great study to kind of look at look at um, TDFFTC uh, in in uh, in women uh, taking prep. I know that some people have breakthroughs, so to speak, on prep, but the injectable is a little bit different, right? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is an important one too. This is also from the HPTNOE3 study. So really what they did was they looked at um, this comparison of, of what's called, um, this is what happens when you're on, if you if you um, have early virologic failure and uh, in, in HIV infection on when you're on one of the long-acting, uh, when you're on the long-acting cabotegravir. It's called this Levi syndrome. And then there's also acute HIV syndrome, and there's a lot of differences. Levi's kind of takes a little more time. The acute HIV infection is more, more, more rapid. Um, but they really looked at the comparisons of the cause and the onset and timing 
and they came up with a chart that actually has Levi and, and AHI kind of in the same on the same uh, page. So those of you who are doing cabotegavir, this law, this this um, early virologic inhibition is kind of what happens when you have somebody on cabotegavir and then they develop HIV infection while they're on cab, and then you kind of have a smoldering of HIV infection. And this was shown in, in some of the studies. And in fact, despite on-time injections, we know so far there's actually been six of these, these cases where patients in the long-acting cabotegravir have gotten HIV, despite the fact that they're taking their injections on time. So as we know, some of the antigen antibody tests also in these patients will fail to detect the HIV. This is why the recommendation in, some, in the guidelines now, at least in the, in the federal uh, PrEP guidelines, recommend not only just antigen antibody testing, but also viral load testing to be done at each injection visit. It's because of this Levi syndrome. So for the new PrEP guidelines in 2021, that, those, are, those are the changes that happen. So just a really kind of a, a word of caution for those on HIV injectable PrEP and managing patients who are on HIV injectable PrEP, that this Levi syndrome is very similar to acute HIV. There's some similarities and differences, and you really kind of have to work that out and know those differences of, of those two different things um, to kind of manage patients who may have uh, symptoms of HIV infection while they're on long-acting long acting preps, just to kind of be careful of it. So finally, another another piece that was really good was um, a nice look at the possibility of using a TAF elvitegravir insert for HIV prevention. So again, this is investigational, not approved by the FDA. Obviously, this is something that's kind of early on. But they looked at um, 25 people, uh, uh, men and women, uh, they used one to two inserts of, of these, of this uh, 20 milligram TAF and 16 milligram uh, elvitegravir uh, rectal inserts. And most patients were white, 57%. And they looked at rectal tissue issue, tissue levels and, and it seems to be that these drug levels are actually good for about 72 hours or longer. So, so this may potentially kind of turn into a potential on-demand rectal insertion of, of, these, of these inserts, which may actually be a possible on-demand option for, for, for PrEP, for MSM uh, uh, options in the future. So we'll have to see where this goes. We don't know what's going to happen with this in the future. But again, it's an interesting kind of proof of concept um, analysis that, that was done. Uh, we uh, we covered doxyvax in the last presentation, which looked at the doxycycline um, for post-exposure prophylaxis. But just remember that many of the studies also had people on PrEP in those studies and really showed really good HIV prevention numbers with oral PrEP and those that oral PrEP does really work well. So despite the fact that we have these other options, just remember, you know, oral PrEP, the cheapest thing out there right now is TDF-FTC. And, and that's that's going that's generic. Um, it's easy to take. Uh, you know, some people may, may use TAF-FTC. Some people may be on the injectables for different reasons, but just know that the oral prep still still is really the kind of the mainstay of therapy here um, for for most patients. That was a really great overview of prep. Now, what kind of data was presented regarding treatment? Um, yeah, so so what I thought I would do in the, in the last section is really kind of look at um, cabropivirine for the most of the end of this. Um, and there was a couple studies that that we'll talk about, Mariana. The, uh, first one is um, the um, uh, the the solar study. So the solar study basically is a is a study that looked at people who were suppressed on HIV treatment uh, with with um, uh, BF TAF, which is Bictegravir, uh, Emtricitabine plus Tenofovir alafenamide. So that's Bictarvi is the brand name. Um, they had to be undetectable for at least six months. And they were randomized two to one to either um, go on the uh, go on the injection, the cabopivirine every two months, or to continue their their um, their oral therapy. So this way, you're getting a look at people who are on, who are suppressed and doing well, and basically either switch to cabopivirine or stay on their other their other therapy. And that other therapy in this that in this study happened to be BF-TAF. 
Median age was 37, 20% were over 50, about 20% were black. Average of two and a half years of prior therapy on VF-TAF. So they followed people for 12 months and they looked at them and said, what happens at the end of 12 months? So it actually showed that the cabopiprivirine was not inferior to the to the um, to the BF TAF, so the the oral treatment. So the the injectables did just just as good. And if you look at percentage of people who were undetectable, is ninety percent in the cabopiprivirine arm versus ninety three percent in the in the BIC F TAF arm. And again, similar rates of virologic non response. However, there was a difference here, not statistically different, but again, something to think about. There were three confirmed virologic failures in the cabropivirine arm, and there were none in the in the BF TAF arm at, at, at 12 months. Um, so the specifics on this can be found in the presentation, but basically all three of the failures of the cabropivirine, the injectable arm, had ropivirine rams observed at failure, and two of them had insti insti rams. So it demonstrates that really the switch off BF TAF, while it's effective for people who want to do injections, um, uh, there are these rare cases of virologic failure. And again, I'm not telling people that, you know, this isn't statistically different. It, 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 it was not inferior, really good numbers, but just know that there is a risk of a potential failure in small numbers of patients. All three of the patients, though, that did fail were able to use PO meds for suppression uh, after failure. So that's good to know, too, so that the patients that did fail, um, their cabropivirine, they were able to go on something orally that actually, uh, back on something orally that actually suppressed them. And that's really helpful. So, so and, and also if you realize this, you know, there was some, there was some data on the metabolics because you're really switching people from stopping TAF and those people who went to the cabropivirine arm. Because remember, they were all on BF-TAF, right? And then, then half of them are two to one. Many of them got switched to cabropivirine. So what happens to the, to the weight gain? Uh, and, and weight changes. And weight changes were similar across uh, 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 arms, whether you're on the switch to the cabopivirine or stay on your uh, your your uh, BF-TAF. Uh, no change in waist to hip ratio, weight to height ratio, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, all the metabolic parameters essentially stayed the same in, in the solar study. That's actually good, good to know. Finally, to round out cabopivirine in this section, just to talk a little bit about a nice look at thigh injection. So where this comes from. So uh, thigh injections would be easier, right, than giving deep uh, IM gluteal injections. So the question is, what is, you know, is that possible? And there have been some, there has been a previous study which looked at a different formulation, but this is actually looking at the original formulation of, of cabropivirine. So the, the, um, the, the um, you know, the, the every two month injection. And they actually use the every month injection as well in the study. And they basically had people on, on undetectable on the cabropivirine uh, injections for at least three years or more. And then they received either every month or every two month thigh injections, you know, with the correct dose, right? Um, uh, for 16 weeks. So where this comes up though, is that if you have somebody who has a large BMI, let's say somebody's BMI is 45 or 50, you may not be able to get into the muscle. Um, even if you use that large two inch bariatric needle, and those of you who've done cabopivirine, you, you'll know what I'm talking about you may not actually have a needle long enough to actually get into the muscle and you may still be in fat, sub-Q fat. So the, so the thought is that if you use a thigh, could you actually be more likely to get into the into the muscle? And that's really the kind of thought of this. So these patients with larger BMIs, which I think is where you would use this. Um, but the problem with this is that the BMI in the study was actually relatively low. It was only a median of 25. There was a max of 53. So I think, Mariana, for this one, more to come on this. I think we're going to see more uh, potential uh, uh, looking at uh, study looking at thigh injections and see if that that is an option for for some of our patients who who uh, who may have higher BMIs. 
What about using the injectable in patients with ongoing viremia? What's the latest to come out of Corey about that? Yeah, so so this I think is probably the most one of the most important studies that was actually at this at the at the conference. These are you know a lot of times these patients who are viremic um, who want injections are often really difficult to treat patients, and sometimes they're some of our some of our most complex people that we have. So this was actually systematically looking uh, systematically looked at in San Francisco. I can remember in San Francisco where this was done. It's it's the safety net clinic there in the city. Um, they had 133 patients total that were put on cabopiramide, but 57 of them had detectable viral loads at baseline. So so you know roughly uh, you know uh, just uh, uh, just over half a patient half of the patients. Most of these patients had un- unstable housing. 98 percent of them were on public insurance. Many of them are using stimulant drugs, 38% with major mental illness. And basically out of those 57, 55 of them actually got to an undetectable viral load within a median of 33 days. So two patients did not suppress and both had uh, baseline resistance when you went back and looked at them. Uh, and both would not take PO meds even after failure. So this is really off-label, right? It's not within the labeling right now, but I think there are people who are gonna be looking at this more closely to say, you know, is this a potential way to um, to manage some patients that may actually be more difficult to treat or maybe less likely to be taking pills, and this might be a great way to kind of have somebody like a you know attend a clinic every other month or find them on the street every other month and give them their injection, and hopefully they would remain suppressed from an HIV standpoint. The question here, I think, is I think which is important. Um, I think you probably would probably do some resistance testing in these patients uh, prior to starting. I think because they are viremic, so you'd be able to get a a normal uh, genotype form prior to, prior to initiating therapy. But again, these are all things I think that are just in flux. So Mariana, that's it for now. Okay. So more to come on our next edition, covering some more updates from Croy, but I think there's a really uh, great information here, both on PrEP and also on, on cabopiverine um, injection for, uh, for treatment. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us more about some key takeaways from this major conference for listeners who may not have been able to attend. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.